on this episode of Catholics in the Capital. Artist Louise Peralta, Dr. Tony Zeiss, Executive Director of the Museum of the Bible, Father Jack Hurley, and Dan Dan, the Radio Man. All this and more. Catholics in the Capital starts right now. Hello, I am Christina Cox, your radio host, and welcome to Catholics in the Capital. We are coming to you from 1160 a.m. from Washington, D.C. You know, on behalf of the Guadalupe Radio Network, we'd like to wish you a happy and healthy New Year. Have you made any spiritual New Year's resolutions yet? Many people pick general things, such as wanting to lose weight, or others want to save more money, or you want to stop complaining. But how about you? What about something spiritual for a New Year's resolution? Why not email me at christinacox at grnonline.com or go to Catholics in the Capital Facebook page and let me know what your New Year's resolution is. But here are some of my ideas about how you can add a spiritual resolution to your list by making a promise to our Lord Jesus Christ. Like not missing weekly Mass or going more often or just not being late to church or getting there early or perhaps praying more or adding a rosary each day, or making an effort to go to confession or volunteer at your local church or food pantry. There's so much that we can do. Why not just pick one and feel more close to God in your life every day? Friends, it's been some pretty cold weather here today in the East Coast since New Year's, and I hope you are bundled up, and it feels like it's in the single digits out there and a lot of wind, so take care of yourself in the cold this winter. You know, I was just looking up in the Bible if winter and cold weather is mentioned in the Bible, and obviously it is, because God knew what he was doing when he created the seasons. Spring is like for rebirth and planting, and summer is for growth, autumn is for harvest, and winter is a time where we're waiting for God to bring new life and hope. Winter is a time to grow closer to God. So this is what I found in the Bible. To everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens. And then here's another one. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Galatians 6, 9. So trust God through the seasons of life. He is a faithful God. You know, you want to stay tuned today for we have some very important guests coming on the show. We have Dr. Tony Zeiss, who is the executive director of the Museum of the Bible. And he is going to share with us of how they built the Museum of the Bible and how it was started by Stephen Green, who is the owner of Hobby Lobby. And there are many things to do when you go over there. There are eight floors in the museum, and one of my favorite galleries is an exhibit by the Vatican Library and is located at 400 4th Street, Southwest, Washington, D.C., and I'm told it takes about four hours to see the entire building if you can stay that long. And to get tickets, you should go online and pick out the time that you want to visit, and they will be waiting for you, or you can print them out, because there's a lot of people that are coming into the city just to see that. So when you hear our interview later, you'll hear Dr. Tony Zeiss talk all about how the Museum of the Bible came about. And then later in the hour, we're going to have Luis Peralta, and Luis Peralta is a friend. I met him when he worked at the Pope John Paul 
cultural shrine, and he was involved in doing the exhibits over there. And he started his artwork, and the more he started painting, the better he became. And he started painting the popes and the saints, and he's won all kinds of commissions here in Washington, D.C. He's painted murals, and you won't want to miss his story about how his faith came back to him through his paintings. And we have our weekly guest, Father Jack Hurley, will be joining us, and he's going to be speaking about two important saints this week. St. Elizabeth Seton, who was an American saint and a convert to Catholicism, and a mother of five children, an educator, and the foundress of schools. She founded the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph. So he's going to tell us all about that. Father Jack will also talk about St. John Neumann. And his feast day is today, January 5th. St. John was from the Redemptorist Order and was the founder of many schools and Catholic organizations, especially in Philadelphia. Later, we'll hear from Dan Dan, the radio man, and he'll be joining us as we discuss what happens in Washington, D.C. in January. I would also like to share the news that Jones Rome's blog from EWTN, she pointed out that she attended the reception of the newly appointed U.S. Ambassador Clarissa Gingrich at the Vatican. And Ambassador Gingrich presented her credentials to Pope Francis as ambassador to the Holy See. The guests that attended the reception were Cardinal Edwin O'Brien, Cardinal James Harvey, and Cardinal Raymond Burke. And Monsignor Francis Kelly, who was a canon at St. Peter's Basilica, was there as well as the U.S. Ambassador to Rome, Louis Eisenberg, and his wife, Judy. We'd like to congratulate the Ambassador Clarissa Gingrich in her new post and pray for her success. I will be posting the photos later on Catholics in the Capitol website today. And lastly, there is some news about the World Meeting of Families. And the theme is Marriage and Families, which will take place in Ireland this year on August 21st to the 25th. And we'll be hearing more of that in the months to come. Well, all this and more, please stay tuned to Catholics in the Capitol. You're listening to 1160 AM on the Guadalupe Radio Network. On the 22nd of each month, come to the St. John Paul II National Shrine for Evenings with Merciful Jesus. All are welcome to join the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy for adoration with praise and worship, confession, a talk by one of the sisters, and a small group reflection. Recognize that God's mercy is greater than our sins, so that we call upon Him with trust, receive His mercy, and let it flow through us to others. For more information, go to jp2shrine.org. That is jp2shrine.org. Welcome back to Catholics in the Capital. Here's your host, Christina Cox. Hi, welcome back to Catholics in the Capital, and I am Christina Cox. We have the pleasure to meet Louise Davali, and he was born in Nicaragua in 1980 and migrated to the U.S. in 1985. He's a fabulous painter. He started his education at Bell Multicultural High School and studied at the Corrigan College of Art and Design in Washington, D.C. At the age of 13, he started painting graffiti murals in the district, Maryland, and Virginia. In 2013, Louise was selected for the winner of the East of the River Distinguished Artist Award. He was a finalist for the District of Columbia 28th Annual Mayor's Arts Awards. These accomplishments preceded the presentation 
of the National Museum of Catholic Art and Library, National Artist Award by Prince Lorenzo de' Medici in 2014. I'd like to welcome Louise to our show. How are you? Doing good. Thank you, Christina. I'm very excited for this new venture you're on and uh, beautiful building you're in. I'm very excited to be here. Well, thank you for joining us today. You know, I remember when we first met, Louise, you were working at the Pope John Paul Shrine. It feels like it was yesterday, but I know it's been over 10 years. And, uh, and meeting you there, I've seen you in so many different facets of life and how you work in the background and how you work in the foreground. And I was very impressed the way you, um, you handle yourself with so many different types of people. And I'm so glad we're still in touch today. Well, thank you so much. You know, I'm very into uh, the beauty of faith and the importance of artists, and especially ones who do sacred art. To be able to have the gift of being able to paint is something from God. And to create something beautiful is also having the power to attract and inspire or move people. And I've witnessed this in your work. And I always remember that Pope Benedict XVI said, in a culture of images, a sacred image can be extremely effective and dynamic way of communicating the gospel message. So, Louise, tell us a little bit about how you started painting. Um, I started, you know, I could, I've been drawing ever since I can remember. I started painting professionally at the age of 16, but at 13, I started doing street art. Um, at that time, I didn't know exactly what an artist was supposed to be, but I think sometimes we're born artists. You can go to school, you can study art, and never become an artist. And so I feel like I was born an artist, and given the opportunity to grow uh, in my neighborhood was very difficult, but it was easy at the same time, difficult because of the dangers of street art, especially in my neighborhood. If you did street art, it was always gang-related. Uh, every time that you did anything in the walls, it, uh, they affiliated with some gang graffiti. Uh, but then uh, at 16, I started taking art classes at Bell Multicultural High School, my first real art classes with Teresa Giglino. And... She really saw a talent in me and something that I didn't see in myself. And that's when I began really taking art seriously. I got my first commission by Body by Jakes, I believe you mentioned. And then I started realizing that a lot of my early drawings and paintings were religious drawings. I was not a religious person. Um, I was the farthest thing you can think from God. And But all these images came coming to me, and they were coming to me at a time when you couldn't say that my art I was creating the artwork because it didn't reflect my life. Well, when you were working at the Pope John Paul Shrine at the time, you were surrounded by a lot of work of Pope John Paul's life. And then we did some shows together Mm -hmm. there of some religious, and you put some of your paintings up. Do you think that that had an influence on you with being even more surrounded by religious items and artifacts? Um, Working at the Pope John Paul II Shrine was kind of like going to college for me. Uh, it was a place that not only did I learn about the Catholic faith, but about the different faiths from around the world. And that's something that John Paul II was very instrumental in teaching me, is that Catholic art is not just for Catholic people. Catholic art is for all people because we are here to be uh, a vessel. And through the arts, we can attract not only the sophisticated people that you see in galleries, but we also attract the common people. And that's really what artists are here to do, create for the common people and not only for... Catholics, but also for people from other denominations, because through the arts, we can attract them and teach them the truth. So there was a time when God had left your life, and you weren't 
praying and even thinking about God. Yeah. What happened? I think just God sees, um, he's able to see the future a lot better than we are. He has a clear vision for us, a clear plan. And sometimes he works in us in our worst times. And when I wasn't really thinking about God or praying to God when I was creating these works of art, he was still working in me. And that's what I believe that we as people are works in progress. And I think I progressed as a death. Well, you know that um, a lot of painting in the churches way back in the 1500s, people could not read. And they wanted to learn the stories of the Bible. So there were commissions out there for these artists to do churches. And that's when people really could start to understand the Bible. I mean, it's been going on for some time. Mm-hmm. Were you influenced by, like, Michelangelo or Van Gogh or any particular artists? Uh, Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci uh, have been very instrumental in the growth of my, uh, religious works of art. I think when you look at Michelangelo's drawings, you see not only the religious aspect of his drawings, but you also he, he see his struggle as a human being and the struggle that he also had within the church. Uh, one of the things that I saw uh, in one of his murals is where he actually painted one of the bishops as he was going to hell because <laughs> he was being criticized for having nudes in his murals. But then again, we see how when God created men, they were naked. They had no clothing because we were innocent. And then we see uh, with artists, we sometimes see struggles within the church. What we have to see, focus on is the struggle that we have to be a better people, better artists. And through our art, we can also learn about ourselves. And not only that, uh, Michelangelo had to deal with the Pope. And then he, when he was on the scaffolding, he could hear the masses going on below. I think that was actually something that added to the spirituality of his work, and I think that was instrumental in create, making it so magnificent. Well, you know, you've painted Pope Francis, Pope John Paul II, and now you're doing uh, Jupero Serra, which is, uh, was canonized, the missionary saint. Can you tell me what inspired you to do these paintings? I think their life and the humanity in the, the roles that they played. Uh, sometimes we see these figures and we only see the final outcome of how Pope John Paul II was a pope. Uh, and we can also be, oh, man, he had it all. But then you look back at his life and how the experiences that he had in World War II when Hitler was invading Poland. And we see how he had to go on the ground. And those are the stories and the backstories that really inspire me to do the work. Not because he was a great pope, not because he traveled so many miles that he broke so many records, but because he had a humble beginning and he had a great end. And all these people uh, that I painted have that humble beginning and then have a very uh, great outcome, not because of their own power, but because of the power of God in them and the power of the, you know, the center of the church, which is Jesus Christ. Well, there's really a true likeness in the portraits that you do, and I know you've done other historical portraits here in Washington, and you've been you've won all kinds of awards. Can you tell us about a couple of them? Yeah, I'm very excited about the awards that I got with the National Museum of Catholic Art and Library. I think those are important to me. Um, mainly because they were about the faith. It was about religious works of art. But besides those, I'm also proud of the works that I've done for the D.C. government. I think in 2015, I was commissioned to do a work of art that represented the relationship between China and the United States. It's a very complex work of art that I didn't know it would actually end up in Beijing, China today. So sometimes when I create works of art, I just try to do the best that I can and try to convey a message. And this was a very complicated message to convey, but it also taught me about how governments and even within the churches, we have to find common ground, and sometimes we have to overlook the differences that we have. 
And Louise, your family is from Nicaragua, correct? Yes. Tell us about that. Uh, we're, uh, my family is from Nicaragua. I'm actually, my dad is from Honduras. Um, wow. And I was born in Nicaragua during the 80s, and we had the conflict, the civil war that was going on. And that's one of the reasons that my family decided to migrate to the United States. We were living one war zone, and we ended up in a different war zone here in the district uh, because that was one of the, um, it was at the heights of the crack era. So in my neighborhood, um, it was drug dealers and prostitution going on. Oh, my gosh. Well, God definitely had a plan for your life, and coming here to Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, uh, was really amazing for you. And you're continuing now to do a mural, I believe, right? Yes, right now I'm working on several projects. One of the murals you mentioned is a, a historical mural that I'm doing of the contraband camps here for uh, Garrison Elementary School for the DGS Percentage for the Arts. I'm working with Sandy Bellamy and uh, Margaret, who, who you also yes, friends with. Yes, I know, with. Sandy. And then I'm also doing uh, 24 pieces for the new uh, Watkins Elementary School that they recently remodeled. So I think God has opened so many doors, not only in the religious uh, works of art, but also in the in the public theme, and I think that's actually part of his plan, that we expand and we're able to go outside of the church and really work, and that's where Pope John Paul II comes into play again. Wonderful. Now, we only have a couple minutes left, but I do want to ask you about Mother Angelica. What are the plans here? What are we making? Oh, Mother Angelica, she's a... As I mentioned before, I think she's going to be a saint one day. She's been very inspirational to me. I've seen how a, a young a woman came to create such a, an empire of news media, and now she's touching people all over the world. So I'm hoping to uh, finish this painting by February next year, and uh, I'll have it ready. Wonderful. I can't wait to see it. Maybe we can do a launch together. That would be great. So uh, how will people reach you if they want you to commission you or see your work? Tell us where your website is and how people can reach you. Uh, They can reach me on my website at Peralta. P-E-R-A-L-T-A gallery.com and they can also call me on my cell phone. I'm very personal, but I like to talk to people at 202-809-7089. Well, that's wonderful, Luis. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Catholics in the Capitol and I wish you and your family and your children, by the way, you are very blessed, so thank you for joining us. Thank you, Christina. It's a pleasure. Catholics in the Capitol will return right after this break on 1160 AM WMET. Not sure what gift to get for your loved one or what book to read next? Go to Pascal Lamb. Pascal Lamb is a full-service Catholic bookstore and gift shop. Located in Fairfax, Virginia, Pascal Lamb has a large variety of top-quality merchandise and a knowledgeable staff. We're open Monday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. For more information, call 703-273-5956 or shop online at pascallamb.com. Here at 1160 AM WMET, one of the things that we love to do is evangelize through the airwaves. If you want to help us evangelize through the airwaves by evangelizing on the roadways with an 1160 AM WMET bumper sticker, it's very easy. All you have to do is give us a call or email us at WMET at GRNonline.com and we'll send you out an 1160 AM WMET bumper sticker. Welcome back to Catholics in the Capital. And now our weekly guest is with us in the studio, Father Jack Hurley from the Cathedral of St. Matthew's the Apostle. How are you, Father? 
Fine, thank you. Wonderful to have you back again right after Christmas, first week of the year. Yes, this 2018. is a time of uh, continuing the celebration of the 12 days of Christmas, but in a special way of uh, celebrating two of our original American saints. Well, who do we have today? Well, today is actually the feast day, January 5th, the day in which we celebrate a saint who, while born in Bohemia, stands out for his ministry in the United States. And he was canonized a few years after St. Elizabeth and Satan, whom we celebrated yesterday. He was canonized by Pope Paul VI on the anniversary of his death, which occurred shortly before the outbreak of the Civil War. Now, while initially Father John Neumann served as a missionary to immigrants in upstate New York, reason being many of them in that area uh, had come from Germany, and German was the first and principal language. So he was sent as a missionary up there to serve with them. And actually, St. John spoke not only German and English, but several other languages. And so he was a welcome missionary in the area and traveled around quite a bit. In time, though, he sought community and joined the Redemptorist Order. And at the same time, his reputation as a popular preacher grew. In 1852, he was named the fourth bishop of Philadelphia. And there he began a vigorous program of building churches and schools. I think we can relate to St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, who founded parochial schools in so many places. But here he emphasized and continued and supported this effort in various ways. And he also founded a religious congregation, the Sisters of St. Francis, to help staff the crowded schools. And on the side, he also wrote two German catechisms, which of course were very important for the young children. By the time of his death, half of the population of Philadelphia turned out for his funeral. At his request, he was buried in the Redemptorist Church of St. Peter in Philadelphia, which quickly became a shrine, attracting many pilgrims seeking cures. St. John Neumann stands out then as a representative of the many missionaries who came, often from Europe, to the young United States to evangelize, to teach, and in his case, to build. And so we can say, St. John Neumann, pray for us. Well, that's beautiful, Father. Would you say that St. John Neumann is uh, a patron of immigrants? Well, uh, like uh, Mother Caprini, in many respects, he certainly was, because that's where his efforts were initially focused. And in his case, to German immigrants, and those that had uh, come from surrounding countries. He's often connected with Bohemia, now part of the Czech Republic, for example, which had a strong right. German background. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly here in the Washington area, he is recognized by virtue of uh, this wonderful church uh, named in his honor, St. John Neumann, up in Gaithersburg. Have you been to the shrine? Unfortunately, I've never been to his shrine. I have wanted to go there, and um, 
It, uh, it is one that uh, is popular, and of course it has a special connection to, you know, with uh, the unique role that Philadelphia has placed in the Catholic Church here in the United States. Well, what an accomplishment. A hundred churches and 80 schools. What a saint that uh, we can all admire because he did so much for the Roman Catholic Church in the United States. And I admire him because he looks down on me every time I celebrate Mass at the cathedral since he is one of the saints that are pictured in the mural mural. over the entrance to the cathedral which looks down right on the on the altar. Well, we're still here with Father Jack Hurley, and he's with the Cathedral of St. Matthews, and we have another saint that we're going to talk about. Well, yesterday, on January 4th, we celebrated the first American-born saint, Elizabeth Ann Seton. Born just before the American Revolution, she married William Seton, and together they had five children. Raised as an Episcopalian, she became involved in social work and earned the epithet Protestant Sister of Charity. But during a trip to Italy in 1803, with her sick husband in search of a milder climate, unfortunately he died there. But on the other hand, during this time, she became inspired by the kindness of a Catholic Italian family and became a Catholic after her return to the United States. On her own, now without financial resources, she established a boarding house for schoolboys in New York. Her reputation reached Baltimore, and she was invited to establish a school for girls there in 1808. The following year, with four companions, she founded a religious community approved by then Bishop John Carroll that formally would become the Daughters of Charity of St. Joseph, devoted to the service of the poor and to teaching and parochial schools. Sister Elizabeth Ann, with her increasing sisters, soon founded a school for poor children near Emmitsburg, Maryland. She now was popularly known as Mother Seton. And although she died in Emmitsburg on January 4, 1821, by then she had established some 20 communities spread throughout the United States. Everywhere they went, her sisters opened schools and taught in orphanages, and she is often credited with laying the foundation of Catholic parochial schools in the United States. Her sisters also became involved in care for the sick, and here in Washington, they were responsible for Providence Hospital. She was beatified by Pope John XXIII in 1963 and canonized by Pope Paul VI in 1975. In those intervening years, there was a strong effort by Baltimore and Washington church representatives to further her cause, including my former pastor at Little Flower Church in Bethesda, Monsignor Joseph Coyne. St. Elizabeth Ann is buried under the altar of the chapel of the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth in the Provincial House of the Daughters of Charity in Emmitsburg. Nearby is Mount St. Mary's University and Seminary, where I was fortunate to attend and grow in the saintly influence of Mother Seton and her sisters. If you have not been there, the Seton Shrine is well worth visiting, as it also provides the opportunity to visit the beautiful grotto situated above the seminary at Mount St. Mary's, where she taught more and more pilgrims are discovering hope at the Seton Shrine. In the past two years, I understand the number of visitors is up 
over 25%, where they echo the simple but powerful prayer, Mother Satan, pray for us. Well, that's just beautiful, Father. I know a little bit about Elizabeth Ann Seton because I'm from New York, and there was a house that she lived in before she moved to Baltimore and um, came here. And I read that she wrote to uh, Archbishop John Carroll before she came over. But what's really interesting is that she converted in 1805, and that was a time when you went from Episcopalian to Catholic must have been a uh, not such a favorable decision around some of her friends and family. Yes, uh, that was one of the reasons she did lose much of the support and had to go out on her own as a widow with five children. It's amazing what she accomplished. And I think what you brought up today is interesting as well, which I didn't know, that when she got involved with the care for the sick, that they were responsible for Providence Hospital. I was just looking at their website the other day, and they've been around, I think, one of the oldest and largest hospitals, uh, Catholic hospitals in the country. Right, yeah. Its status is now changing a bit because it's becoming involved in a new uh, medical system. But it certainly, the sisters, I think, relate very much to Washington because their initials are D.C., (laughs) Daughters of Charity. I'll have to remember that, absolutely. And one last thing, when we're praying to uh, St. Elizabeth Seton, who is she the patron of? Well, I think for any of us who have gone to parochial schools, she is a key in establishing that. And for that, we can be very grateful. Well, thank you, Father Jack, for sharing that. And look forward to seeing you at the Cathedral of St. Matthews this week. And look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you. Please stay tuned to Catholics in the Capital, And we'll be chatting up with Dan Dan, the radio man, who will talk to us about things to do in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to the Guadalupe Radio Network and being part of the family. As family, we have a duty to pray for each other, and we would be honored if you would let us pray with you and for you. You don't even have to tell us your name. Just go to our website, grnonline.com, or call our prayer request line and leave us a message at 800-395-4008. That's 800-395-4008. We will be praying for you every day. And now I'd like to welcome my co-host, Dan Dan, the radio man. And we're here to talk about the things to do in Washington, D.C. Nice to see you, Dan. How was your New Year's Eve? Oh, I had a great New Year's. How was yours, Christina? Quiet, you know, resting up. I watched the ball drop. How about you? Uh, Same, at at home with my wife and daughter and just kind of taking it easy, a very quiet, mellow uh, New Year's, but very excited for this uh, New Year ahead, and uh, may it be a blessed new year for everyone. And have you made any uh, resolutions for 2018? Uh, actually, I did. Uh, I have New Year's resolution, trying to, to grow deeper in my faith, to spend, you know, 10 or 15 minutes a day reading a little scripture, and trying to work, see how far I can work my way through the Bible on a daily basis, just reading a little amount each day. How about yourself, Christina? Well, trying to pray more rosaries during the week, of course, and um, I'll be starting my Sacred Heart Novena this week, the first Fridays, and that always is known never to fail. So that takes about nine months, and that's what I'm going to be doing on the first Fridays of the month. 
And, of course, trying to lose a little weight, not eat so much sugar, the, the regular <laughs> things that we only stick to for about eight weeks. If that eight weeks would probably be uh, well above the average for most people. <laughs> but uh, those are some good New Year's resolutions to make. And, uh, you know, it's a new year. Things are a little slow after the holidays, but we know there's still things going on around town. Um, is there any exciting events out there? locally for our listeners to hear about. Well, sure. There's several events this weekend that are at the Cathedral of St. Matthews. And starting on Saturday, January 6th, is the Classical Organ Concert by Suzanne Bichamp. And she is the assistant organist for the Cathedral. It's a free concert. It starts at 3.15 in the afternoon. And she will play the music of Bach and Franchek and Don Quinn and Langlace. Those are composers. And during my research, I didn't realize that because the epiphany of the Lord is the next day, that it's a tradition that Bach had done many concerts and things around that time, this time of the year. So January 6th is um, the first one coming up. And then Sunday, January 7th, a Donald Cardinal Whirl will be the celebrant and the homilist at the Cathedral of St. Matthews at the Apostle this Sunday, and he will be doing the 11.30 Mass with Monsignor Jameson. And this Mass this week is to celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany of the Lord. And do you know what that feast means, Dan? Uh, yes, it, uh, it actually comes from a, a Greek word. It means to reveal, is what the word epiphany. But uh, it, it's commemorating, you know, the visit, we say the Magi, the wise men. And uh, tradition says, you know, it was about three wise men came to visit uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph and presented the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I know in a lot of traditions, whether, you know, it's Catholic or potentially Orthodox, there's a lot of different traditions and fun little things people do on this day. Was there anything you did, Christina, growing up in your household? Well, I'm a big bakery person. You know, during the holidays, we used to go to this very famous bakery back in Rockland County in New York, and um, they always had the Three Kings cakes and breads, you know, with the crown on it. We used to buy that, and that kind of told us that after the Three Kings feast is kind of the end of Christmas. I think people wait until that time to take down their Christmas trees, and the um, always looking at the food. <laughs> so the cakes and, and the breads, that's always in our household. And what about you? What do you know about the Three Kings? Well, I know uh, in different parts of in Europe, they have different traditions. So in, in Spain in particular, they have it where, I guess, the three wise men, uh, they'll have people dress up as three wise men and give presents to the children uh, in different areas of Spain. So it's kind of like Santa Claus, but instead you have three wise men. And I know they even in parts of Italy, they do uh, gift exchanges on that day. And then uh, in Belgium, there they have the children actually dress up as the wise men. And they go door to door singing different carols. And the people will give them treats or money, almost kind of like a Halloween version of the Epiphany in Belgium. But uh, And I know there's probably various other different practices. You talked about baked goods. In France and Spain, they have, I think, their own versions of similar type of cakes. Um, and I think that's probably where we get the king cake, you know, so popular, especially in New Orleans. Um, That's right. The, the cream-filled cakes with, I think they put a plastic baby in it um, themselves. I think that tradition comes from France and Spain. So I love the Catholic faith, you know, especially when you got, you're talking about food and baked goods, you can never go wrong. Well, that's great. Well, also on Monday, January 8th, we have the feast day of the baptism of the Lord. And of course, we all remember that famous scene from the Bible when um, John the Baptist baptized our Lord Jesus Christ in the Jordan River. 
And I love actually that passage in the Bible because it's, I think, I'm not sure if it's the only, but especially one of the few instances we have all three persons of the Trinity. You have the Holy Spirit and the dove, the Father saying, uh, this is my uh, son uh, who I'm well pleased, and then Jesus himself. So it's one of the few instances where you see the Trinity present uh, in Scripture. So definitely uh, that'd be a great Mass to go uh, celebrate that. That's right. And then this month, you know, we have the March for Life, and we've got thousands and thousands of people that will be coming in. So you'll want to tune in next week to find out about all the, uh, the schedule and the conference and all of that. And I believe that you also have a raffle that you're doing here at the network. Tell us about that. Yes, so we just kicked off on uh, January 2nd. It's our yearly car raffle because the months of January and February tend to be the slowest, especially in radio and for us at Guadalupe Radio Network. So it's a chance to raise some more money for uh, the radio station to help operating costs. It's $25 a ticket, or if you pay 100 you get five tickets. So that's uh, you know value of $20, so some saving there. And the money goes towards operation costs, but then the, we'll raffle off on March 1st a winner of a 2018 Chevy Camaro. An exciting, uh, nice little ride if you especially like to go a little fast and you, you like that sports car kind of feel. That's what we'll be raffling off. So you can email me at dan at grnonline.com or call in at 202-288-0150 to either purchase tickets or learn how you can help us with the raffle. Well, count me in. That sounds exciting. I'd like to win a car. Well, you're listening to Dan Dan, the radio man at Catholics in the Capitol. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, Donnie, what are the mysteries that we pray on the rosary? Glorious, luminous, joyful, and sorrowful. There you go. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to WMET 1160 AM or simply log online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Hi, I'm Christina Cox, and welcome back to Catholics in the Capital. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Anthony Zeiss, who is the executive director of the Museum of the Bible, where he leads the daily operations of the facility and the museum staff in Washington, D.C. Dr. Zeiss holds a doctorate in community college administration from Nova University, a master's degree in speech with radio and television, and a bachelor's degree in speech education from Indiana State University. It's a pleasure to have you here. May I call you Anthony? Tony, I would prefer. Thank you, Christina. Well, welcome, welcome. I I realize you just had your opening. Where is the Museum of the Bible located? We're located at 400 4th Street Southwest, and that would be exactly two blocks south of the Air and Space and the African American Museum. Well, I've seen on television, you're getting a lot of press. I have read and seen on TV, you had quite a bit of Catholics at the ribbon-cutting ceremony. You had Cardinal Whirl, you had House Representative Chaplain Pat Conroy, and you also had Archbishop Christoph Pierre, the nuncio, and then Sean O'Malley from Boston. What a, Among so many others, not just Catholics, but so many other great uh, religious leaders were there. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, uh, first of all, we cut the ribbon on a, a, a one of our exhibits called the Vatican Library, and that's why we were able, I think, to draw so many important Catholic leaders, and also because 
they wanted to be there for the dedications. It was quite a wonderful thing to do, lots of big crowds, uh, and it was great fun. I think the wonderful thing is that the, the Museum of the Bible is non-sectarian museum that you include many different religions. Tell us about that. Well, the Bible, of course, is the foundation for many faiths. And uh, from the very beginning, we decided that we needed to be non-sectarian and respect all faiths and open this Bible up to everyone, people of faith, people not of faith. So our purpose is to invite all people to get engaged with the Bible, its history, its narrative, and its impact. And those are the three themes for the museum. I understand it costs $500 million, and one of the lead people that is responsible for helping the fundraising and the donation of funds for the museum was Steve Green. Uh, That's correct, and that's Steve Green. Uh, uh, Most people would know Steve and his father David from Hobby Lobby uh, retail stores from Oklahoma City. Steve began collecting biblical artifacts uh, back about 10 years ago, and it was a passion with him. And then he decided they needed to be seen by people, so he developed some traveling exhibits to see if people would be interested. Mm -hmm. And they took these exhibits all over the U.S. They went to Israel. They went to the Vatican, and they did so well, had such huge crowds, the Vatican massed them back, so they went there twice. And then the Pope helped them get a connection in Cuba, and believe it or not, they went to Cuba. Was this Pope Francis that helped, or uh, uh, Pope John Paul, or Pope Benedict? Pope, I'm not sure which one okay. it was, because I wasn't on board at the time. Okay. But anyway, they're, they're still talking about it. And so they were so successful, then he, he said, look, why don't we develop a museum? The first world-class museum to the Bible. And so we're really excited about so it. It's happening years? in our generation and in our nation's capital. So how many years did it take to develop the whole concept and then to find the space? And mm-hmm. Well, they started uh, with the vision uh, seven years ago, and they developed the concept, and then they had to find a building, and, and they did the research. Should it be in New York City? Should it be in Dallas? Should it be in Washington, D.C.? It came back overwhelmingly. Washington, D.C. is the museum capital of our country, so that's where it needed to be. Then it took them a year and a half, almost two years, to find a building that came open for sale that was suitable. Not many buildings come open for sale in downtown D.C. And so that one just happened to come open, and it's it's a wonderful old building. It was built in 1923, very sturdy building. It was the first refrigerated warehouse in Washington, D.C. They used to drive a train in it and unload ice or unload meat and load other things up and go out. So it's very sturdy and Then we developed a relationship with the Smith Group architects and Mm -hmm. the contractors. It's Clark Construction. Oh, yes. And those two, we worked very well with them. And they took that 16-story building, took out every other floor. So now we have eight floors and built it into what I think is the most incredible museum ever. You know, I think I read that you had 100 international scholars that were involved in the planning. That's correct. Uh, so we wanted, in order to uh, strike that uh, non-sectarian balance, uh, we had scholars, Hebrew scholars, Catholic scholars, Protestant scholars, other scholars, people with no faith scholars, all work together to vet every word that you will read in that museum mm-hmm. or listen to if it's on a video, and to make sure that it is as accurate and authentic as possible back down to the earliest writings that we've discovered for each book. So. 
We feel very, very good about it. We think we've we've struck a very good balance, Christina, because some articles will come out and say there's not enough Jesus in that museum. The next article oh, yes. comes out and says, well, there's too much Jesus. So probably <laughs> too we're much right religion. In the middle. Yeah, too much religion. <laughs> that's well, anyway. Washington for you. Yeah. You know, that's why we started Catholics in the Capitol, because God does exist in Washington, D.C. So we are very excited that the Museum of the Bible is here. Tell us, if I, I haven't been there yet, so you have a beautiful theater, I understand. It seats about 470 That's seats? correct. It's called the World Stage Theater. It's very intimate. It has a balcony. Uh, Amazing Grace, the Broadway musical Amazing Grace, is playing right now uh, until January the 7th. So, But you have to go online to museumofthebible.org and get your tickets. And so... You don't want to miss this. My wife and I saw it the other day. It's absolutely fantastic. Well, and I have some other exhibits there. Stations of the Cross is right. another one. As a matter of fact, the uh, sculptor worked, I guess, most of his life in the Vatican. And several people have uh, some of his works at their desks in the Vatican. So you don't want to miss that. Wow. It's terrific. And our Jewish friends from the Jewish Historical uh, Museum, they have an exhibit there for the City of Books? Uh, yes. And in fact, there are several Hebrew Bible-related uh, exhibits. One gallery is from the Israeli Antiquities Authority. And Christina, they have never loaned their antiquities outside of Jerusalem except for this time. And so we're really thrilled. They gave us uh, or loaned us uh, 1,250 different relics. And you don't want to miss it. It's an entire gallery. It's not an exhibit. It's a whole gallery on the fifth floor. Wow. I, I don't know where to go first. I mean, you have eight floors there. Where yeah. do I begin? Tell well, me. Well, it depends on your interest, uh, seriously. So if you're more interested in the history of the Bible and you want to see how it was developed and how it evolved and how it got over, you know, to here eventually, uh, and who did the translations of, of different languages and so on, then you want to go to the history floor. Uh, if you're interested more in the impact, no other book has had such an impact on civilization, especially Western civilization, then you'll want to go to the impact floor. Right. And uh, if you're interested in the stories of the Bible, the narrative. Uh, and you have children and that sort of thing, you want to go to the narrative floor, and it's quite an amazing thing. Uh, you'll go see David and Goliath, for instance. Wow. And that, that, by the way, came from the Bible Lands Museum in Jerusalem. Oh. And so they loan us yeah, exhibits so you, and put it together. So you have relationships with other museums that are now going to be sending Correct. you so exhibitions. So we really are, world, when I said world-class, we really are world-class. Yes. We've had curators over there setting up their exhibits from all over the world. So you must be booked up in the ne next couple of years already. Oh, yes. Well, we've got some permanent exhibits, and they say permanent. I mean, probably you're looking at six or eight maybe 10 years. And then we have some rotating exhibits. Some will be there three months, some will be six months, but they'll rotate. Mm -hmm. and we'll, so we'll always be bringing something new uh, to the district. And uh, I think that will appeal to people who live here. And we really want to be a good neighbor and support the district. And what about a bookstore? Do you have a bookstore or a shop? Well, we don't have a bookstore, but we have a gift shop. It's like no other gift shop what I've ever seen there? in a museum. Uh, we sell, of course, upscale apparel, uh, your T-shirt will not fall apart the first uh -huh. time you wash it. This is really good <laughs> stuff. Uh, we have jewelry. We have books, of course. Mm -hmm. We have our, our own curriculum. We have a, a Bible-based curriculum mm -hmm. that's interactive. It's now in, in uh, Israel. Got over 100,000 students taking it. It's also in Great Britain. And it's now going into Christian schools 
and uh, charter schools in the U.S. Will you be leasing, let's say, the roof garden or different places within the museum for private parties, or how do you feel about that? Well, uh, we will allow people to use the space on a partnership basis where we co-host events. We're not allowed to actually lease or rent because it would jeopardize our nonprofit status. I see. So however we co-host, just as if you would like to do your show over there, we would co-host with you, and you could say coming to you live from the Museum of the Bible. Oh, we'd love to do that. People who want to use spaces, we have a a wonderful ballroom. It's amazing, and you can partition it off to make it smaller or larger. We have a restaurant called Mana, and they cater all the food. We have a coffee shop called Milk and Honey. We've got amazing exhibits with, uh, I just saw the other day, two Bibles that came over on the Mayflower. One of them was William Bradford's Bible. He, You might recall he was the second governor of the Plymouth Colony, all sorts of things. We've got Julia Ward Howe wrote How Great Thou Art. I think that's the one. In any event, we have the the original. She wrote it right here in the Willard Hotel, and we've got the original copy of what she wrote on. Well, that's amazing. So tell us then about any educational programs that you're doing. Yes, we'll have a lot of uh, educational programs, particularly for the district and the local area. I said we want to be a good neighbor. That's one way. We had one last night, Armstrong Williams. Uh, was the MC, and it was a town hall, and we had Ben Carson, uh, Dr. Bernard, myself, a couple of uh, uh, Rabbi Weinblatt talking about morality uh, in America. And so we'll do a lot of... My favorite title, though, is uh, of one of the workshops we'll be providing. It's called Digging in the Dirt, which, of course, is oh, like children's that. language for biblical archaeology. Okay. But there are lots of things we're going to do, and we're open to ideas. I have two last questions as we're wrapping this show up. First of all, if I am a principal of a Catholic school and I want to bring a whole busload of kids down, what do I do? You call Kelly Martin. I'm sorry I don't have her phone number, but you can find it by going online, and that would be museumofthebible.org, and look for the link for groups, and uh, she'll take care of everything. It's easy, and they'll meet your bus as you come, and you got to be there at a certain time and all that. It's easy. And the other thing is, is free admission. Now, there's a little fee for groups because we have to handle groups more, but Mm -hmm. it's not significant. But it's free admission. However, I would say to your listeners, be sure and go online and get your timed tickets. Tickets are set for every 15 minutes. That way you'll avoid the lines. Otherwise, you might not get in. That really helps. Why don't you give us the uh, website? museumofthebible.org, or if you forget it, just Google Museum of the Bible, and you'll be able to get your tickets. And we have memberships, too, 27 different uh, you know, levels of memberships, and because we have to raise money to operate, we think it'll be around $36 million a year wow. to operate, so we have to do that. Well, it would definitely be worth it. Well, I look forward to coming down there to the Museum of the Bible. Don't forget to get your tickets online, and thank you so much for joining us today on Catholics in the Capitol. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Tony Zeiss, who is the Executive Director of the Museum of the Bible, for his interview today, and Luis Del Valle Peralta for his interview. And these were fantastic stories, and thank you for joining us. I can't wait to go to the Museum of the Bible and see the Vatican Library exhibition and all the different uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and the theater, the shop, the many things that they have. I haven't been over there yet, so I can't wait to get over and get my ticket and 
spend about four hours. So I hope that you'll be able to go over and see that during your weekends. And Louise Peralta, who's a fantastic artist, congratulations to him and his new mural that he has done in all the schools that he's working for. And Father Jack, thank you for bringing up about those saints. We look forward to having you back next week. And Dan, Dan, the radio man, thank you for joining us about the three kings. That was interesting things that you taught us about the different countries and traditions of the epiphany of the Lord. And we learned a lot from Dan about the adoration of the Magi. And thank you, Michael Wasabah, for coming in and doing an outstanding editing job on our show. Now, next week's guest, we have Julian Heron, who is a partner of the law firm at the Tuttle, Taylor, and Heron Law Firm here in Washington, D.C. And he serves as a member of the Agricultural Technical Advisory Committee for Fruits and Vegetables. He has also served as a staff member of the President Advisory Committee for Trade Negotiations. And what's interesting about Julian is he's a convert to Catholicism. And we're going to learn all about how he converted in the Catholic faith. Dan did this interview, and he will share some great things also about the sisters of the Dominican Sisters of Mary from Michigan, where he does a great golf tournament for us here and the sisters in Virginia. And then we're also going to have the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Sister Joseph Andrews, who will tell us about the new CD that, that is coming out, the number one classical music record that's on the Billboard charts right now. And she's going to be sharing with us all the information about how they made the CD and how the sisters have come forth to put together the songs from different countries. So you're not going to want to miss that part of it. And in closing, I would like to share with you about my New Year's resolution, which I plan to do will be the Sacred Heart of Jesus Novena, starting on the first Friday today for the next nine months. And a little bit about that, the way that you do this Novena is you go to Mass at 12 o'clock on uh, the first Friday of the month, and then after the Mass, you sit in adoration. And for about an hour. And this will bring you closer to God. If you have any problems, if you have any, uh, you want to have a discussion with our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the time to do this and sit there for an hour. And you will be surprised of all the great ideas and joys that you will get out of doing this novena. And this is a great way to have a New Year's resolution. This is what I am doing. And I'd like to read you a little bit of a prayer from the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I have gotten a book called the Sacred Heart Prayer Book, and it's by Aquinas Press, and I bring it to the church with me each week. And there's a beautiful prayer to the Sacred Heart. Oh, Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers and works, joys and suffering on this day in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass, offered throughout the world, in reparation for my sins, for all the intention of your Sacred Heart, and for the intentions of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, for the intentions of my family, friends, relatives, and benefactors, and in particular for the intention of the Holy Father. Amen. And by doing this Sacred Heart Novena, there are some promises that were made to St. Margaret Mary. And for example, I will give them all the graces necessary for their state of life. I will give them peace in their families. I will console them in their troubles. 
I will be their refuge in life, especially in death. I will abundantly bless all their undertakings. Sinners shall find in my heart the source and infinite ocean of my mercy. Lukewarm souls shall become fervent. Fervent souls shall rise speedily to perform perfection. I will bless those places where my image of my sacred heart will be exposed and venerated. I will give to priests the power to touch the most hardened of hearts. Persons who propagate the devotion shall have their names eternally written in my heart. And in the excess of mercy of my heart, I promise you that my all-powerful love will grant to all of those who will receive communion on the first Fridays for nine consecutive months the grace of final repentance that will not die in my pleasure nor without receiving the sacraments and my heart will be their secure refuge in their last hour. Thank you for tuning in and join us next week at Catholics in the Capitol on Friday on 1160 a.m. at 1 p.m. And don't forget, God bless America and God bless the Roman Catholic Church. See you next week.